Hello, and welcome to the Week in Review. I am not Michael Curzon. Uh, he is sadly away this week, but we are joined by a guest who we'll get to in a moment. I'm joined, as always, by Luke Perry. How are you, Luke? Uh, I'm very well, and without Curzon, you have no one to respond to about comments about the weather, so I'll fill in your boots. It's quite sunny, to be honest. You know it is It is quite nice. I, I was out this morning, um, so I, it was a bit cold, so I wore a jacket, and then uh, it became a, you know, a, a death death vest when I was walking back, so it's definitely a much nicer day. Um, and we are joined by Bournebrook contributor Brad Goodwin. Brad, how are you? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. Like, really glad to be on the show. Um, never done a podcast before, and first time I've seen the Bournebrook team members face-to-face, so really, really excited to get into it and contribute and contribute to magazine i really like so. glad to have you here well uh to to us to to um to uh assuage any fears uh curzon hasn't died he him and him and his uh him him and his him and his uh partner uh uh where are they on on, some, on holiday or something like that or i don't know on some, on some sort of road trip anyway he, he he's otherwise engaged um but hey uh i'm leading the charge this time um and we will begin with you brad um you've been looking at the local elections which came out last night um what have you got to say about them well so of course a lot of the commentary on the elections is based on the results so how the parties are doing that labor are doing really badly and i think we should all kind of laugh at that regardless of who we support support because at the end of the day i'm going to say the point i think a lot of us will be thinking is that They've neglected these kind of northern heartlands for years, for, for decades, actually. And it's really about time that people did turn their back on them, even if, you know, it doesn't have to mean that we're glad the Conservatives are doing well. You might be, you might not. I kind of am, in a way. But what I think, at the end of the day, for Hartlepool, the Labour decided that the good candidate would be a Canterbury, a resident from Canterbury, who was an arch remainer who had been kicked out of another northern constituency two years ago. And so if Labour and then Labour have the cheek to come on and tell us that they're learning lessons, no, you're not. You haven't learned any lessons. You don't care about these people. You don't partic- you don't like them very particularly. Just be honest. I'd have much more respect for Labour, to be honest, if they just said, you know what, you aren't the kind of voter we want anymore. We're not interested in you. And they went full-heartedly for the kind of voters they're getting. But that's only my brief point. I think more importantly, actually, is we don't talk about, do we really need so many local elections? I mean, councillors, of course, we need. I'm not denying that we need residents to take the bins out of this kind of stuff. But it's not just that. There's so, such a different settlement. You've got the um, police and crime commissioners, you have regional mayors. And there's just a couple of points I wanted to take from that, and especially about the regional mayors, for example. So... Um, Mark Wallace from Conservative Home was on uh, Sky News last night and saying um, that the local candidate, uh, the Conservative Tees Valley Mayor, has been really popular. He's had a really good first term and so he's going to get a landslide for the second. But that made me think, isn't being a local candidate representing your local area exactly what parliamentarians are supposed to be doing? This is, that seems to me, all you've discovered is the miracle of local representation and I find it quite extraordinary that so many representatives these days don't come from the areas they're supposed to represent. And I know that's a simple point, but I just think that's so in, so important. And I think oh. it's much money. It's not really brought us together. I feel like what a lot of these new positions have done is kind of a consensus patting on the back. You know, it's got the word democracy on it. Um, 
we've you know we've helped contribute to democracy with these kind of ideas but have they really i i love politics i will happily sit on the council news all election results all day today but i don't know who my police and crime commissioner is i particularly don't know what they do and i suspect so many other people must surely feel like that too and turnout is usually quite low at these kind of elections and yeah i just think there's so much wasted of money i just wondered what you guys thought and firstly have you even heard of your police and crime commissioner do you know who they are i mean to answer that that quick question no yeah and uh, <laughs> it, it seems to me ballot papers nowadays for local elections all part of tony blair's tony blair's pet project to democratize everything and americanize everything i mean local ballot papers like the united states now where you can elect your local dog catcher <laughs> and uh it just seems that responsibility now in in terms of local government is, is so splintered i mean do you talk to the parish council do you talk to the to talk to the county district council so it's just another wave of bureaucracy and another wave of fat pensions to go along with it yeah and to go on point about the, the big hitters of, of the local elections and of course we're, we're recording this when results are still coming in but we, we can touch upon Hartlepool the Labour got swamped in a place where they really shouldn't, but we knew it was coming. And Sunderland as well, they're um, deep red. The, the Metropolitan Council in 2016 was nearly all Labour. Now the Lib Dems are gaining seats, the Tories are gaining seats. It looks like a, it's, it's going to be marginal on who runs it. I so, think, I think um, we... we... We all anticipated the, the collapse of the, the sort of the populist parties like UKIP and Reform, etc. Um, of course, in the last election, the only reason Labour kept Hartlepool was because of a split vote on the right um, from Richard Tice. Um, and that, that seems to have gone away. And and you, you mentioned, Brad, um, the the folly of sending a, you know, a southern uh, metropolitan centrist to... Um, to uh, run for not only a Labour heartland seat, but also a very conservative, very leave voting seat. Um, and it, it kind of echoes Starmer as a whole. You know, the guy who the party entrusted to win back the Red Wall vote is just that. He's a, he's a, he's a metropolitan, you know, uh, lawyer from from you know, from London. Um, in the wake of these results, as it was for Corbyn, is it now curtains for Starmer? It should be, but it won't. I think Keir Starmer will kind of do a massaging job because, you know, he set himself up for this. This will just be what he does best, which is spin and professional management. He'll say, well, we weren't predicted to do that well anyway. You know, it was a tough, 2019 was tough for us. And the kind of changes we know Labour would need to do to even be on the, even to get close to winning, they won't do because they don't like them. Like I said, they don't like that ideology. They don't like that support base. They, they would much rather, I think, stick to an ideological purity and lose than do the kind of changes they need to win. They would rather lose as, as they are than... And actually, this idea of sort of Starmer as a professional centrist, as I saw on Twitter, I think, actually, Starmer is just Corbyn without the free broadband, as I put it. He's, you know, every... All those failed policies of Corbyn's that really got people turned against him in 2019... He was behind them. The second referendum, Starmer, migration, Starmer, um, and all for every any single policy I think you can think of that a lead voter in place like Hartlepool would hate adamantly, would be, mm. but would have his name on or at least be sympathetic to. Well, it, 
it isn't it isn't just a question of brexit as as i mentioned this it is a is a it's a very conservative part of the country the northeast and and starmer you know pe people people don't forget things people won't forget that it was that starmer you know gladly took the knee for uh for blm during the summer uprising yeah it's just it's like like we said it's an aesthetic this is so distant from northern constituencies it's a london centric and this is the thing as well that will that labor will start using they'll go well we did really well in london because i do suspect i think they may actually win the london mayority on the first round that won't surprise me yeah they uh, don't think anyone really <laughs> cares and really but you know they'll start saying well london's good for us but that's great it's just every 90 percent of the country that's turned against you that's brilliant you know in, in, in 2019, Labour gained the wealthy area of London called Putney and yeah. lost countless northern working class seats that had voted for Brexit by landslides. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what London, that's what Labour is. It's a city centric, university centric party. And that will only get them about 200 seats tops. I mean, so yeah, I, whatever I, they do, they're never going to win Hartley. Mm. I feel I feel bad then for the old the old stalwarts of Labour, you know, someone like Dennis Skinner, who um, no, who was known as the the Beast of Bolsover, was one of the most um, I'd say authentic MPs we've had in, in modern times, and he 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 was thrown out because he was you know he was almost the, the baby thrown out with the bathwater, where you know the the, the purging of Corbynism affected you know the old Labour guard who are who are far more in tune with the public who um, than the metropolitan types. The, the, the Labour MPs and the upper echelons of the Labour Party that had a chance of salvaging that party were all dismissed at the last general election. And MPs like Caroline Flint, who accepted that the Brexit vote happened and we needed to get on with it, which she was cast out of her seat in Doncaster. And all that's left is, is the elitist Metropolitan Party. Hmm. Let's 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 move let's move into into London because the the, the results haven't haven't come come back yet. We're still waiting for those. Um, it seems obvious to anyone who's who's in tune with with politics, especially London politics, is that a, a second Khan term is practically inevitable at this point. Um, the it was a complete failure of of the anti Khan coalition. I mean, the the Tories put forward a, a very poor candidate in Sean Bailey, who um, immediately uh, sort of pissed off the the socially conservative wing of the party by offering to rename tube stations after you know corporations and that sort of thing um so let's let's do a bit of a, a probe into london and, and why someone who has objectively failed as hard as uh Sadiq khan has on many metrics including you know, crime cost of living transport that sort of thing how is it that khan is able to moonwalk into a second term tribal loyalties i think I think there's also a bit of demography going on here. There's been London has had a demographic change that has benefited the Labour Party. That's undoubted. University students, population has just benefited Labour. They're the people that vote Labour. They are you know, really young people, metropolitan. It's the kind of it's the, what Labour are now, and mm. they thrive in London. It's just kind of it's as true as you know one equals one. I mean, yeah. It's, just the way it is, there's not, gonna, it doesn't really matter who Labour put out, I don't think Labour would have to put out, they don't even have to put out a human being as a candidate, I don't think, like, I just, bad way it is, London's yeah. most independent now, because the problem with the devolution settlement in general we have, is it's not really enhanced their representation as part of the United Kingdom, it's just motivated 
separatism and a kind of independent spirit that hasn't really brought the four nations together. It's not helped anything. Mm. Sorry mm. to get away from the point a little bit, but... Mm. Well, the, the the Tories seem to have kind of, since Boris, seem to have kind of given up on London. Um, I mean, they you know they pushed Zach Goldsmith into the into the running um, in the last election, but they they gave him nothing really. That's because the Tories do not need London. I mean, they know it's a lost cause to begin with. But hey, that they've got all the, all these fallen northern fortresses on their doorstep now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's the thing with with, with uh, British democracy is that you know it doesn't really matter if you if it's London or Blythe Valley. It's, you know, uh, it's it's one seat is one one seat is one seat. I mean, the, the Tories do not need any of any seats in Wales or Scotland or in London to get a landslide. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, because they, they've they've rediscovered um, the, the the One Nation Coalition of the industrial base and the. Uh, the home counties, yeah, and the shires. It's going to be that's the future of the Conservative Party. That's just where they're going to go. I mean, they're not. Well, it's 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 where the base is, but I mean, the the the, the party has been far from conservative um, for a long time now, especially under someone like Boris Johnson. Who um, I don't know if you guys recall, but there was a when when he when he first got elected um, in December, not 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 June. Um, I think it was Steve Baker came out to um, shut down uh, people saying that he was a he was a, he was you know, a far rightist, uh, and he sort of said that the PM has always been a centrist, which it sort of it tells you where the upper echelons of the party are. Where you know I don't know about you guys, but you know in July 2019 I was you know I was I was sort of bamboozled thinking that you know Johnson was this kind of flag waving populist when um when when it, if you look even slightly beyond the surface, you see that this person has been in the party establishment, in the media establishment for longer than I've been alive. I mean, we look back far enough and just figure out that the writing's on the wall to begin with. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, the, as I said, the, the minute Boris Johnson came to power, oh, he's this centrist candidate. I mean, I mean the Conservative Party doesn't care about conservatism, of course. It cares about getting votes and winning elections. It's a party it, yeah. machine more than anything else. Yeah, it's 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 the party of continuity, and and, and, and no wonder it pivots to the centre ground, mm. especially when Labour are acting as they are, and they can capitalise on this. Mm. That that seems to be where Western liberal democracy has gone. Where in each nation now there seems to be, with this, with the exception may, maybe of France, it seems to be that there is a party in every Western country now, which is sort of the the continuity party. Right, the part, the party of the of you know the big donors. You know, it, here it's the Tories, in America it's the Democrats, in Germany it's the CDU. Uh, democracy is sort of in trouble a little bit, seeing as you know it seems to be now that there's only really one party who can win it. Yeah, and you're effectively in a one-party state, aren't you? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Right, but well, I mean, I mean, I mean, Germany has been for uh, basically a couple of decades now, but uh, the rest of us are now following suit. It's just funny, isn't it? How they always talk about um, increasing and having more democracy, but the result has been less democracy and more talking through and more splintering. It's supposed to unite us, and it doesn't. And I, t- I think that's exactly what runs at the heart of a devolution settlement. I think New Labour, their intention was to to rip us up and kind of divide us and bureaucratize us because it's their ideology. It's what they are. And I think what the Conservatives have done is one not realise that that's what Labour are up to, and I think what they've 
fraud is, like I said about the consensus kind of politicians, what they've done is they've heard the word democracy and go, oh, that sounds good. That's a vote winner. That we've done something. We've addressed an issue here and there. But all the same problems still remain because hmm. they don't know how to deal with it. They won't deal with it because they don't know that it's a problem. And it's that kind of everlasting cycle. If you don't know that something's a problem, how can you fix the problem if you never be able to know what the problem is? Hmm. And it's round and round and we'll just... It's just a bit of a decline. I think it's a bit inevitable from here. Back onto the local elections, um, we saw something quite interesting with a couple of a couple of Lib Dem gains from Labour, um, particularly around Sunderland, as, as you were saying, Luke. Um, one thing that I, the only thing that I really liked about about the European Parliament was that the elections were a chance to, you know, get some uh, outside parties in the door. You know, famously, you know, UKIP and Brexit Party and the Greens. Uh, you know, would 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 get in in those votes. Um, is 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 that is that the same for local elections, or is it still primarily the domain of the big boys? I think that the Lib Dems have always been sort of the party of the of the local, and they've tr- tried to build on that. But I think that their gains can be explained by um, Labour being Labour being run by a, a damp squib, and. Um, the uh, the Lib Dems taking, but well, the, the Lib Dems have done, done well in previous years because, well, for their standards, because they've um, been committed to um, rejoining the EU. And yes, well, that's a very unpopular view that does have some, some support in England, hmm. which, which is where they, I think, they've taken votes off of Labour. Hmm. I think as well in local elections, it's you're much more likely because I think a lot of people feel the stakes are lower, so to speak, in quotation marks. Um, what people will do is they will just vote tactically and vote for a party that they wouldn't normally vote for, but would do so just to get the others out. So I think maybe people there would normally not vote Liberal Democrat, but think, I don't like Labour, Lib Dems are the opposition, so I'll just vote Lib Dem to stop Labour getting it, and more protest voting going on in a sort of lower, less serious stake, I guess. Yeah, and but again, protest opens up another interesting uh, avenue to go, go down, which is that there were a lot of, you know, this time more than the other, there, there were a lot of new parties. We had, you know, uh, you know sort of the the uh, rather humorous uh, Northern Independence Party. We had the SDP in a number of seats. We had Heritage uh, and Reclaim in London and Reform, all all of which appeared to have fallen far short of the mark. Um, which kind of you know uh, answers my my earlier question, where the local elections are sort of being uh, de-democratized in favour of the established parties. And on that note, let's move along to uh, my story for this afternoon, which is uh, once again we're talking about uh, lockdown and the effect of it on uh, average people like ourselves. We've seen a, a startling uh, stat recently, which is that one in four adults in the UK have experienced mental health problems in the last year. Now, we've we've discussed this in the past on the show, but primarily in children, um, because, you know, as we know, the the the, the stuff, stuff in schools where, um, you know, kids who are at the age of being socialised and learning about the world and other people are doing so in a time where the way we interact is so unnatural and so um, uh, almost prison slave-like. Um, but we haven't we haven't spoken much of it about um, in in adults, um, which is strange because you know it's adults who are losing their jobs, their their homes, their businesses, their you know their social lives. Um, 
so before we get into the issue itself um to to to, to the two of you how, uh, how have you noticed your your mental state in the last year i mean for me i've noticed that uh every um increase in restrictions and every new lockdown i've been feeling more angry hmm. and uh but I think that only really hit me when um, it was earlier in the year and I had just finished my uh, writing up my dissertation and I laid back in my bed thinking, okay, what on earth am I do now? Because this was in early March time, so I couldn't go to the pub. Hmm. I could, all I had was, you know, food warehouse in the corner shop for company, which, you know, isn't that healthy. So I, mean, I wouldn't say I've, I've collapsed under the pressure. But it's definitely not been a fun time. Yeah, no, sorry, uh, sorry, Brad. Before you come in, uh, yeah, that that's that's a really good way of putting it. I, I, in, in myself, it's, it's it's been yeah. I'm not you know pulling my hair out or breaking down in tears, but it's, there's a, there's almost a a quiet desperation to it. Yeah, yeah. How, how, how about you, Brad? Um, I was completely back to that. It's a quiet sort of desperation. It's not. I've not been you know angry at the world, or I've been annoyed at the world because I think. The lockdown policies are frustrating, but I just it's I just noticed it's in the little things. Someone says something, or something happens, or a news event I've seen on social media, or something. Little things are just building up, I think, and it is just going to turn into a pressure cooker. And I know we keep saying how much longer can we put up with this? How much longer will people put up with this? But I think it, it has to come to an end soon, or I think people will just break. I think ultimately we're going to have. People were just going to have enough of this. It's just going to get to a point, and yeah, I think I understand the desire to see it end real soon. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. It's um, but get as, as I said, it's just such an unnatural way of living. Um, this is, this is inevitable, and the the article that that I that I read about the story highlights the, the the part that I find the most frustrating about this whole thing, which is that um. The in the article it says that you know due to due to the coronavirus this is happening. It's not happening due to coronavirus. It's happening due to the response to the coronavirus. You know, um, which is you know it's just just uh, something that we've already known becoming clearer, which is that the coronavirus is nowhere near deadly enough to get to to uh, justify all of these new rules. Um, the collateral damage is far greater than the death toll of the virus, which as we've covered previously is is inflated yeah so that that, that's where the kind of the quiet desperation comes from right where you're up against something that that just isn't listening to you it's 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 almost kafka-esque in a way where you're up against this kind of this um this mass you know system of bureaucracy and whatever which um is giving you all, all these diktats but if you ask questions about why you're getting these diktats, you immediately get put on the spot as being a heretic, and you know, and and that's making it worse for people who feel that not only do they have no way out of this, but they have no way to even vocalise their frustrations without being um, gaslit. Really, this is the no doubt the strongest propaganda campaign since the the World Wars, and it, it has been one on the basis of it being on psychological terror. The, the government had their report. All, all of that can last March, saying that um, the public are not being as compliant as we would like. Therefore, we have to hit hard with the emotional messaging and literally terrify them indoors. Mm. And that wraps up the hysteria, which cements these lockdown policies in for the long term. Mm. And that's when all the mental health things start happening. That's when the lack of basic social contact, coupled with, of course, job insecurity, unemployment. 
all, all these societal malaises that lockdown has exasperated. And uh, it just makes me laugh. These kind of people who have the politics of lockdown, as I call it, these people who are sympathetic to lockdown, who are kind of encouraging lockdowns, you know, the zero COVID strategy that some people want to adopt. These are the same people who turn and say that conservatives and traditional religious and all these kinds of people are oppressive, but they're the real oppressors. I feel like it's that in general with their kind of views on society, but this has just been a really dominant way for them to do it because, you know, it's a health crisis. No one wants to get ill. I think that's the best way to attack people. And I think that's the problem with the whole thing. It's hard. It's got to, it's true that people want, you know, people don't want to die and get ill. Like, Sure, but I mean, there is a there is a level of acceptable loss that we accept every every year. You know, prior to two thousand twenty, we accepted uh, flu deaths every year, right? Just 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 because, because you know you, you to to try and you know uh, eliminate death is just a Canusian task. You may as well go to the beach and start fighting the waves. You know. Um, and, and again, that's it, isn't it? Is that is that it's for me at least? It's not. It's not just what's happening now, but we've 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 crossed the Rubicon. We've opened Pandora's box. We've set the precedent that the government can tyrannise you for your own good, um, which is you know a precedent that no Western society should ever set, but which has. Um, so with that in mind, it's now there. There's seemingly no way out of this. This can be done for any reason. You know, the, perhaps the next one will be climate, or even or even the next flu season. And I think what I'm worried about as well is how that manifests economically, because we've got we've had the kind of pro mass spending, mass borrowing kind of policies. And if, as they suggest, the economy bounces back and does grow quicker than expected, I'm worried that that's going to start becoming a precedent with the voters too. Because mm. that spending lots of money worked the first time, you could borrow loads and get away with it. So people are going to want to vote for that again. And I think long term. If the Conservatives, especially with the kind of voters they now have as their base, if the North East is their kind of base, you will, will all like higher, higher spending in general, a bit broadly, I think. Um, I fear that might become the long-term economic strategy of the Conservatives, and who knows where that will take us. It's, yeah, it's it, it's interesting to, to bring up um, an economic crisis, because if you look, in, if you look at the last 100 years, there's a trend of whenever the money goes bad, the ideas go bad too you know the great depression was followed not it was, was followed basically immediately by the chaos of, of the, the 1930s and, and then you know fascism second world war you know the uh, i have no doubts that the the crash of 2008 uh, in part created the, the modern culture wars um you know bad economics uh, create a, 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 a vacuum in which you know dark forces can then come out and, and and seize up power so i mean what what happens next remains to be seen but it's still somewhat terrifying and that's another thing that's like adds to the mental weight of you know what comes next we you know when you when you when you destroy all, all the trusted society you know uh, nothing good comes from that yeah, we'll go about economic crisis the reason why that fuels extremism is because people look for an answer hmm. and they're so desperate that they do not care and that works for both the left and the right now, I, I think this decade we will see a period of political radicalization on, on both sides, and not what wouldn't wouldn't just happen through um, the economic crisis. I mean, the political intolerance, the echo chamber politics that was building before, and that was creating a powder keg of its own. But now, with, with an economic crisis, 
it will just send it to the stratosphere. Yeah, and that's the thing is that the crisis hasn't even happened yet. Um, it's gonna happen when they when they end the furlough scheme. Yeah. A lot of people are gonna be out of a job when the furlough scheme ends. Mm. But also, um. I was saying this in the last episode of, of that current predicament, but um, when you know when we do get a bit of freedom back, um, I had this bizarre response where I don't fully trust it. You know, I don't, I, 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 I don't know how long it'll be until I, until I have freedom and not think this could be you know pulled away at any moment. You know, and 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 for that, you know, I find it very hard to plan things even more than a month ahead in the future. The president has been said that we don't have freedom if if freedom can be taken away hmm. this quickly. Hmm. Yeah, and that and that's the thing, isn't it? Is that um also you know another big part of of uh, of good mental health is 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 belonging and um part of part of belonging in the West is that you know we're we're a free society. Um, losing losing part of what is the soul of the West is going to you know hurt a lot of people in a much deeper way. Well, it's like losing a part of yourself, isn't it? I mean, that, well, that's been happening before. Tr the traditions of the West have been slowly been thrown out the door, and uh, that's that's made people angry. That's why people vote for populists. Hmm. And underneath, it's just so kind of obvious. All these things are undermining our com com communitarian spirit, even um, our desire. We need other people. That's just the way we are. I think over the last couple of decades, we've had a kind of market ideology where we exist as like little atoms little individuals who can be molded who can be shaped into whatever way the government wants us to be shaped as and i'm not look i'm not the most radical free marketist in the world but you know there is we are not atoms of, you know individuals to be molded in, according to government policy where people who have our own culture and that no our, our natures you know we, they can't treat us with this underlying individualism that's going on. It's just not going to work. It's causing yeah. us mentally and physically. It's it's just not going to stand. Hmm. Well, th this is this is the logical conclusion of that, right? It's it's stay in your home. It's don't go near other people. Don't hug other people. Don't trust other people. Um, go where you need to go, and then come right back again, right? Like, like that's the ethos of, of, of lockdown. And yeah, you're right. It, it is making people miserable because it's it's taking apart. It's taking away a part of what it means to be human, which, which is to be communal. I mean, saying policies like don't hug your grandma, I mean, come on. I mean, that's just... And then, oh, and then that's how people about it. And they say, oh, yeah, well, why don't... Well, yeah, of course we shouldn't, because the, we need to keep people safe. And you're thinking, well, how on earth did we get to this? Hmm. How did we get to this position where people are literally accepting government diktats not to hug their grandparents? I mean, it's just the sort of this is setting for state control and, uh, and state dictat in the future and taking away the freedom again is just insane hmm. yeah it's, we, 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 we've um yeah we've uh again that, that, the, the 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 part that haunts me the most is that i was in favor of the first lockdown i think i think i think i think we all were um around the time of the first lo lockdown my my mum was quite sick with coronavirus um and that kind of you know pushed me emotionally into doing it because you know, obviously you know i i couldn't see with my own eyes what was happening i couldn't see that you know clearly the crisis was being inflated by a by a hysterical media i mean i should have known but you know hindsight is, is a uh, 2020 um 
and that's kind of that, that's kind of thing that that's harming me personally is I, I feel almost a guilt in that you know i i went along with it you know i i was happy when they called the first lockdown you know i i clapped to my doorstep every thursday night you know i i to, to my eternal shame i was i was i was part of that mass public consent um for the first one and i think the 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 writing was on the wall when we let the first one happen because the the level of public obedience during the first lockdown was uh, basically unprecedented in in british history like not not even during the plague were we this you know ready to 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 live our lives completely alone it's really scary precedent <laughs> where we go from here i think that's i think what you said earlier is about the future that's what's more worrying i think it's not just it's once we come out of this that's not the end it's where do we go from here what decisions political decisions does this set a precedent for where do we go are we going to be all locked up indoors again when some new variant emerges next year because the right mutates every year it evolves every but when if you had the flu the year after it's a different flu to the one you had the year before hmm. so if this happens with the coronavirus are we just going to start going to the cycle of locking down again are we are we going to have the vaccines now i know but you know even that's still is that going to be enough to stop them deciding to, for a lockdown strategy well they're already saying that there's going to be um a third shot maybe need like a booster shot needed next winter um so yeah, I mean, the, the way it's going, the way the way the rules are set up, and the way the precedent is set, this is this is on track to never end. I mean, the, the rhetoric is that they're downplaying the vaccine. I mean, Boris' recent com recent comment that um, it it was lockdown that was to blame for this rising for, for this dramatic fall in COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths when we had this very successful vaccine rollout. It's just been cast into the shadow almost. Mm. So yeah. Lockdown is now the only weapon against COVID. But also, like the the media plays a role in that because of their you know editorializing. They could very easily point the camera at Texas and Florida, who have got rid of basically all COVID uh, rules, and they haven't seen a spike in cases. Um, yeah, obviously, you know the the camera is pointed at somewhere like India, which is um, it's still it's still inflated because you know uh, India's seen four hundred thousand cases since this second peak happened. In a country of 1.3 billion people, that's a drop in the ocean. Um, so the, the the media has has so much to answer for in in this in this time. Um, and on that, we will uh, move along once again to a slightly lighter story. We, we've um, we 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 we've got into our our, our decaying democracy and our, and our vanished civil liberties, but uh, we'll. This week saw a, a, a return to a time-honoured British tradition, which is uh, facing down the French. Um, Luke, you've been talking about the uh, the, the the Jersey War. Uh, what happened? Yes, the, the the siege of Jersey, as the history books will call it. So, um, of course, Brexit. One of the main reasons why Brexit won is to restore British fishing rights. All these decimated communities on the coast, Grimsby, Great Yarmouth. The, the um, EU fishing rules have uh, absolutely ruined these communities. So, um, but again, this is it has had to be debated out in full and seemingly forever on with the European Union because they also, the continent also likes fish. Who knew? So, um, one of the settlements for um, the Jersey waters, which is near France, and uh, boats that had previously fished there before Brexit could continue if they could prove that they had fished there before Brexit. 
but the French got a bit angry that they've been um that new guidelines were introduced and additional requirements came into force without notice uh, I mean fair enough to be honest and uh so it's different so the French were protesting that it's been difficult to obtain these new licenses so these fishermen could earn a living but uh the French response has been one of well um semi-aggression really the um the French maritime minister Annick Girardin threatened to uh cut off electricity to supply to Jersey I mean Jesus Christ mate it, it's not East Berlin and you're not Stalin <laughs> there are better <laughs> ways of, there, are, there are better ways of dealing with this and um so uh the, the French sh sh sharp to protest on um Jersey waters about, about 60 showed up at the port of St Helier near Helier and, and tried to blockade the, the entrance one which, ship could not leave the harbor for which a, which by the way is an act of war um, yes, it's an it is an act of war. Block blockading a foreign port is an act of war. Um, yeah. So ca carry on. Uh, so uh, yeah, one ship could not leave the port for four hours. I think that's the big biggest casualty of them all. But um, the French abandoned their protests. A musket sounds on the docks. Hooray! I'm afraid Agincourt 2.0 will have to be shelved for the time being. <laughs> but but it, it's just um. France, ever since Brexit, has tried to act like a big kid. I mean, Emmanuel Macron th thinks he's um, Charles de Gaulle when he's really just got little man syndrome. He's under a lot of pressure at the moment as well, Macron. There's, do you know, as you saw the other week, he, um, a group of soldiers literally threatened to have a coup and take yeah. over. So hmm. he's really under pressure to show political strength. And hmm. even if it means taking out his little man syndrome on Jersey, I think he's going <laughs> to... Yeah, not only that, there's, um, he's facing, uh, I mean, the polls aren't looking too great for him. He's, he's up against, uh, up against Le Pen, who was far more energized than, than, than the last time round. Um, so yeah, Macron's, it, it almost feels reminiscent of, uh, when the Argentinian junta invaded the Falklands, where there was a lot of internal pressure on the government and it was seen as being, you know, a symbolic victory to, to go, to go and, you know, take back something from the Anglos. And, uh, well, they, they tried and they failed because credit, credit to the government and, and I will very rarely give credit to this government but they almost immediately sent the royal navy in um two ships were sent and then we saw maps of, of the french ships basically scattering in all different directions there Running was a um, with the tails between their legs yeah there, <laughs> there was um there was a ramming as well did you see that the, the video of the ramming yeah i did that uh, was well french ships have, have tried to ram um jersey boats before not Jersey boats, but British boats before. I mean, when the fishing wars first erupted and um, British ships what went into what the French termed French waters, boats got rammed. And um, so, and Macron has tried to flex his muscles elsewhere. I mean, when the AstraZeneca vaccine controversy came up with, over blood clots, Macron sort of lit the fuse in a way, tried to in inflate the hysteria. And uh, he did the same when the UK had a new variant as well immediately blew it out of proportion tried to lock down the ports and uh, uh it's it's just him trying to act big hmm. shouldn't yeah. need to worry about it and again the french acting french i mean a, a french protest literally puts the city of paris into a state of war mm -hmm. so, <laughs> yeah no um it's like britain in the winter of discontent all year round <laughs> yeah um macron is the the french face of european um unionism right 
he's he's facing you know again he's facing a, an economic uh counterweight uh to the west from us in britain he's facing internal disputes i, I just said uh, brad from the, the the generals who um basically said that france was headed towards a civil war so that uh, a military coup of the french republic would be the best way to uh, get past that as well as electorally from uh, le pen and a whole manner of different um candidates um and yeah, it, it it seems like a sure strength was needed, but it, it it's kind of backfired. And I noticed very little international comment um, from, say, the US or even the EU itself, um, considering the fact that you know two two of the largest you know armed forces in the world nearly uh, nearly got into handbags in the uh, in the North Sea in the uh, in the English Channel. Um, you know what the source of their insecurity is? The French. They're a republic. They don't have a great glorious monarchy like we do. That's at the heart of it. <laughs> was there was their plan to to conquer England and steal and steal the Windsors and and? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one or two of them, one or two of the exiles, they took the French could have if they want, but. I mean, no. if, you're, if that's a problem, just just you know, just rebuild the side. Yeah, that's you know, to, you know, to, you know, to go to war of England. But yeah, but again, it's, it's, again it, it shows the the two different sides of this: the English side and the French side. Where the French the French side is France is is right now very volatile, extremely volatile. Um, yet for us, it was like a meme, right? Like the whole thing was a, was a bit of a meme war. It was like you know, like the I'd say. I'd say the, as a collective effort, the British people put more into memeing the French than actually sending, you know, vessels out to Jersey to uh, to take it on. But it's yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre story. And as I was saying beforehand, it, it it could have been, you know, we could be sitting here right now talking about, you know, uh, an arms race with France or you know, or, or skirmishes with the French Navy or you know, something really serious. But it ended up just being quite whimsical. It, it, it was exciting for about 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, I, 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 know, I that was the most fun I've had on Twitter since election night, I think. Um, <laughs> most fun I've had on internet since since GameStop, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was that yeah. was very fun. Fair play, fair play. Meaning a common enemy, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the 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 back back on this, the, the the French rhetoric was very fiery. I mean, yeah, they were saying um, things like they were going to bring Jersey to their knees and 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 whatnot. But um, but again, you know, it's uh, you, you you don't mess the Royal Navy and live to tell a tale. So uh, another win for England. Um, yeah, chalk that up next to Agincourt and <laughs> the other great victories of the past of Waterloo, yeah, and, uh, Waterloo. Trafalgar. I've got the quote here uh, from uh, the head of the Normandy Sea Authority. It says, "We're ready for war. We can bring <laughs> we can bring Jersey to its knees." And yes, they probably could bring Jersey to its knees, but they couldn't bring the UK to its knees. You know, so same same way the Argen the Argentinian Hunter could bring you know the shepherds of Gibraltar to their knees and the twenty Royal Marines on the island to their knees, but not the country as a whole. Um, and I, I think. In, in a way, I mean, you know, uh, throughout history, war has been perceived as being a way of, uh, you know, the ruling elite to, you know, uh, to reestablish, you know, a, a public spirit. And um, I kind of felt it yesterday. It, it seemed like people sort of came together to, you know, meme, meme on the French. Yeah. Mm. So uh, they didn't stick the two fingers up at the Centennial yeah. <laughs> Port. <laughs> so, uh, so in a way, uh, a, a happy ending. Um, yeah. But now we'll we'll inevitably slip on to another bleak story, which is our miscellaneous story for the week uh luke you've been looking at uh well this, the 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 state of the free church in this country let's say let's say 
Mm. Church is neither free nor a church anymore, it seems. But yeah, I've been covering the very disturbing, dystopian case of um, an Uxbridge street preacher who was arrested in broad daylight from his um, from his stand. He, w- he wasn't blocking the route or anything. He was just standing and preaching the word of God, you know, the bedrock of this nation. And uh, a few um, social service militants approached him in bright green uniform, telling him that he has, um, that they've heard some comments that he's been spewing, that he, that they've heard he's been spewing some homophobic comments and that they are charging him with a hate crime under Section 5 of the Public Order Act. One of the, the many free speech killing laws of this nation. And uh, although he, he was released, the... Um, it sets a well. The precedent has already been set. Preachers have been arrested in this country before for um, preaching in the street, but it shows that the police can act like this without consequence. They can release him without charge, yeah. and um, but they can go on to do it again, and that yeah. means that people yeah. self censor. Yeah. See, see, see. That's, that means that's, the people watching yeah. it yeah. think, "Oh, I shouldn't do this. Otherwise, I'm going to get harassed by the authorities." See, that's the key to this: is that the the arrest rate is very high but the prosecution rate is extremely low. Um, even with people arrested for uh, for breaching lockdown, the the actual rate of prosecution is extremely low. But what it is, is it creates a, a climate of, yeah, of, of exactly, of, of fear, of of self-tempering, of not wanting to deal with the hassle of getting, you know, handcuffed while someone else films it and puts it on, on Twitter, you know. Um, and Uxbridge is the prime minister's seat, isn't it? It is indeed. <laughs> I wouldn't call him a Christian. I mean, I, I wouldn't call him a conservative, um, <laughs> you know, um, but hey, you know, uh, uh, and uh, oh, on that, uh, to to quote our our our, our beloved uh, leader uh, Curzon uh, on that bombshell, uh, we will leave it for uh, a, a, a a different a different episode of the Week in Review this week. Uh, I hope my hosting's been up to scratch, up to uh, Curzon's uh, uh, magnanimous level. Um, Find out later. Yes, uh, I like to I like to thank uh, Brad Goodwin and Luke Perry for contributing. Um, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Cheers.